Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekend, your audio supplement to the news from Israel, the Middle East and the Jewish world. I'm Simon Spungin. On today's show... This week's episode of Haaretz Weekend is doubling up as a preview for Sunday's Israeli National Security Conference, which is being hosted by the Nazarian Center for Israel Studies at UCLA in partnership with Haaretz. It's an online conference, listener, and registration is free, so make sure you click on the link in the episode notes or on the Haaretz website to book your place. We'll be going live on Sunday, the 21st of November, at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 Eastern, and 7 p.m. in Israel. Among the high-profile figures participating will be Yossi Cohen, the man who spearheaded Israel's covert war against Iran, who will be discussing everything that Bennett, Netanyahu, Trump, and Biden have done on that front. Benny Gantz and Mirav Michaeli, Israel's defense and transport ministers respectively, will also be there, as will Senator Robert Menendez, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, as well as a long, long list of politicians, academics, activists and experts on the current strategic challenges facing Israel. Joining me now to look ahead to the conference and to discuss some of the issues that will be coming up is Professor Dov Waxman, the director of the Nazarian Center. Uh, Dov, great to have you here. Thank you for having me on the podcast. So, Dov, I- I've been looking over the schedule for the conference, and, and I have to say it looks fascinating. Um, a- apart from the panel discussion that you'll be moderating on the future of Israel-US relationship, uh, which I promise we will get on to shortly, uh, is there anyone you're particularly looking forward to hearing from? Well, I'm looking forward to hearing from all of them. I think it's going to be a really fascinating conference. The panel discussions in particular are going to be really uh, lively and engaging. Um, I think I'm most eager to listen to the interviews, particularly with some of the former Israeli officials, uh, with Yossi Cohen, the former director of Mossad in particular. He hasn't really spoken much since uh, he left that position and didn't speak really at all publicly uh, while he was uh, director of Mossad. So that's going to be really interesting. Also listening to the interviews with Zippy Livni, former foreign minister and Moisha Yalon, because I generally think that former officials, particularly former Israeli officials, are the most likely to be really open and frank and offering their views and, and to offer quite uh, let's say, unvarnished opinions about things. So I think that's going to be really interesting. And uh, also Mirav Michaeli, I think, just because she always has interesting things to say. So that will be a fascinating in- interview to listen to. Mm-hmm. So listen, you, you set out the stall for the conference in, in very clear terms, right? By, by dividing the day into three sessions, representing what you presumably see as the main strategic threats facing Israel, uh, the shadow war with Iran and the Iranian nuclear threat, Israel, the Palestinians, and the region, and finally, the future of U.S.-Israel relations. Obviously, those are the three prominent issues on the agenda for anyone interested in in strategic affairs. If you could have found a fourth session, what might it have focused on? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Really, I think it would have focused on Israeli society 
and uh, the divisions within Israel, and in particular, the Arab-Jewish divide within Israel. I think in many ways, the issue of the cohesion of Israeli society and the coexistence between Jewish and Arab citizens of Israel is a strategic challenge for Israel. And so that would have been one that I would have liked to have included if we'd have had time in the conference. Mm. And and maybe also China. I mean, the, the, the uh, Israeli president just had his first phone conversation with uh, his Chinese counterpart uh, in the last couple of days. I, I would guess that if we were having this conference next year, that China might be one of the three strategic uh, well, issues. Well, you, you've read my mind because my hope is to hold this conference again next year and, and actually next year focus on Israel's uh, foreign relationships and in particular uh, with great powers and rising powers like China and how Israel is going to kind of navigate uh, its uh, relationship with China and the United States is in many ways a kind of triangular relationship. Um, so absolutely, I think that's a very important issue for Israel. I don't think it's on the level of a kind of strategic challenge as yet. It may become so in the future, but uh, it's absolutely one that I think uh, needs to be on the agenda. Mm, especially if there is a continuing growing daylight between the US and Israel uh, uh, over China, perhaps on things like 5G, that what one to keep an eye on. So, that, tell me, does, does the order of the threats as they're being presented um, at, at the conference, does that accurately represent their relative threat levels, in your opinion, or, or the level of media interest in these issues? Um, I really would think it, it, the, the idea was more for it to reflect the immediacy of the threats, not so much the severity of these challenges, mm. but rather their immediacy. So clearly the, the shadow war, the covert war between Israel and Iran, which really is becoming increasingly an open uh, conflict between the two of them and is, and is uh, spreading, escalating. I think that's clearly the most immediate challenge along with Iran's nuclear program. So that's why we put that one first. No less significant, but you know, less pressing is the uh, Palestinian issue. And then I think the issue of the alliance between the United States and Israel and maintaining bipartisan support for Israel is a kind of longer term challenge. It's not something that I think is an immediate challenge in the next you know, months, but it's something that I think over the years to come will be an increasing challenge for Israel. Mm. And these three threats, they are very much related, right? There are overlapping interests and, and, dare I say it, disagreements when it comes to all three. Absolutely. And I think um, certainly the Iranian challenge and the Palestinian issue, in order for Israel to meet both of those successfully and to have the confidence to do so, it also depends upon a strong U.S.-Israel relationship. So in many ways, the U.S.-Israel relationship is the kind of foundation for addressing these other two challenges. I think the Iranian, one of the things we wanted to do by kind of connecting all three is to think of these as interrelated and to think of them as connected in different ways and not just to kind of focus attention on one at a time, which tends to be much of the discussion. There's either, you know, uh, events and conferences that deal with the Iranian nuclear issue. There's events and conferences on the Palestinian issue. There's events and conferences on US-Israel relations. But to think of these things together and to then explore how they're interconnected and ultimately how Israel can meet them simultaneously, because they really all need to be addressed at the same time. Mm. As director of the Nazarian Center for, for Israel Studies at UCLA, I'm sure U.S.-Israeli relations are, you know, your, your bread and butter. How much daylight is there 
currently between Jerusalem on, uh, and Washington? On, on what issues do they see eye to eye, first of all? Well, I think um, they see eye to eye, it seems, at least publicly, that they agree on the importance and the need to continue the process of Israel's diplomatic rapprochement with Arab states to further the normalization process that was begun by the uh, during the Trump administration to bring more countries into that. That's something that I think both the Biden administration, and the Bennett-Lapid government both want to do, you know, moving forward. But the two biggest issues are on their agenda, the Iranian issue and the Palestinian issue, on those two really critical issues, existential issues in, mm. in for many people, there I think there is um, significant daylight. I don't think the, the two sides see eye to eye at all on either issue. And I think really it's a question of managing the disagreements, whether they're going to be able to manage those disagreements behind closed doors as they've done so far. That's really the, the million dollar question. There's no doubt in my mind that they have very different views on these issues. So far, they've succeeded in keeping these disagreements and differences behind closed doors. But whether that will continue, particularly, I think, as the talks to re-enter a nuclear agreement with Iran resume, it's going to be really challenging, I think, for both sides to keep that disagreement from becoming public and becoming, I don't expect it to be as acrimonious as it was in the past between, say, President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu. I think both sides, both Prime Minister Bennett for his reasons and, and President Biden for his, want to have a good public relationship. But I think we're already seeing these disagreements surface. Um, and I think we're also seeing already tension surfacing on the Palestinian issue, particularly over Israeli uh, settlement expansion. Um, so those are the two issues that will really shape the, the tenor of the relationship over the next few years, I think. Mm. Uh, on the Iranian issue, how do you interpret Bennett's refusal to meet with Robert Malley? Well, this is exactly the kind of expression of displeasure from, from Bennett that I think signals that, that the two sides aren't on the same page when it comes to Iran. I mean, basically, Prime Minister Bennett is clearly unhappy with the Biden administration's attempt to return to the 2015 nuclear agreement with Iran. I think uh, the Israelis believe that that is a pointless and potentially counterproductive exercise to even try to return to the agreement. Um, so it seems that that was a uh, that, that refusing to meet with Mali, if indeed that was the case, and it's not quite clear from what at least I've seen that that they refused or whether it was an issue of protocol or what. Um, but it was a way, it seems, of signalling that displeasure. And I would say at the end of the day, you know, better that than going before Congress as, as Prime Minister Netanyahu did. So, I mean, the, the Israelis are looking for ways to signal their unhappiness, but they're not doing it in a way that's going to cause a public confrontation and a public dispute. And I think that is a good thing. And that at least shows a departure from the uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who, who really, you know, used these disagreements for his own political benefit and inflame the tensions deliberately in many ways. Mm. I mean, it, it, it feels that um, Israel-US relations have lurched 
dramatically and violently from the antagonism of the uh, Obama era to the wholesale Kool-Aid drinking of the Trump era, and now maybe they're uh, they're stabilizing a little? Well, I think the tone is markedly different. But substance-wise, I mean, we often focus on, you know, the relations between the leaders and how close they seem. And clearly, you know, there was a really bad relationship between Obama and Netanyahu and a, a really close kind of bromance between Trump and Netanyahu and, and, you know, a more distant but cordial and business-like relationship between Biden and Bennett. Um, but I think the, the, the focus on, you know, the personal relations between the leaders or the tone, the public tone, often obscures the interests of the two sides and, and whether they see eye to eye on their core interests and on, their, on the issues at stake. And in that respect, you know, I think there was a, a real, you know, no daylight between the Trump administration and, and uh, the Netanyahu government. But I think fundamentally, Israel's interests with regards to Iran and the United States' interests are different by virtue of the fact that, you know, Israel is much closer to Iran and much more threatened by Iran's uh, nuclear program, by its missile program, by its activities in the region. At the end of the day, you know, that that is what's going to shape Israel's uh, response is their threat is and by virtue of where they are located in the region and uh, and the United States is, you know, a long way away. It's not threatened in the same way. And so I think it's inevitable that uh, the United States is going to have a different policy uh, towards Iran than Israel. I think we should kind of accept that rather than feel that, you know, the two countries should always be exactly on the same page. I mean, it would be very uh, unnatural if that were the case. Mm. And almost as unnatural as 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 if uh, Israel and the United States were on the same page with regard to settlements and the Palestinian issue. I mean, this is um, you know a, a right wing uh, prime minister and a, a president who has a progressive wing uh, of his own party to deal with. Absolutely. I mean, you know, this is an issue for on, for both sides. That's uh, not just a foreign policy issue, but an issue of domestic politics. Really, as you as you said, I mean the. Uh, Prime Minister Bennett obviously has his own political base, uh, many of whom are settlers to be concerned about. And so he has to be attentive, especially because I think uh, there's, you know, some disappointment or even sense of betrayal that he's been willing to enter this government with Lapid. And on the American side, absolutely, President Biden has to be aware of the fact that not only, you know, some Democrats in Congress, but the base of the Democratic Party, Democratic voters are becoming more critical of Israel, less willing to kind of uh, for the United States to give Israel a blank check and, and in particular critical of Israeli settlement building in which they see as, as undermining a two state solution. So, you know, the, the domestic politics on both sides are pulling them in different directions over the Palestinian issue. And I think that's going to continue, particularly as more and more Americans are becoming more sympathetic uh, toward the Palestinians as they are more exposed to a Palestinian narrative, which previously they really weren't hearing. Mm. And that's unlikely to change on the uh, Israeli side if and when Yair Lapid replaces uh, Bennett as prime minister, right? Absolutely. I think in many ways, you know, the the issue of the Palestinians 
is going to be one that's going to continue to be a major, more than just an irritant, but a major, it will become increasingly pro- problematic, at least for a democratic administration and an Israeli government, because on the Democrat side, there is a clear shift. And this hasn't happened overnight. This wasn't just a response to Netanyahu. It wasn't just because of, you know, his antics. Mm-hmm. There is, you can, and you can see this in the survey data over time, a shift, particularly among younger Americans, most of whom, many of whom, majority of whom vote for the Democrats, in terms of their attitudes toward the conflict and in terms of their growing sympathy for Palestinians. And as long as it, the occupation continues, as long as military rule in the West Bank continues, that is going to be something that's going to cause a problem between a democratic administration and the Israeli government. In some respects, President Biden is very old school in his attitudes. I mean, he is a product of a time when there was this very strong wall-to-wall bipartisan support for Israel. And he really reflects that. But the grassroots of the Democratic Party, the younger generation of American voters and politicians um, don't don't share those attitudes towards Israel, are much more willing to criticize Israel publicly, more willing to challenge Israel. And I think as they um, emerge as an increasingly important part of the, of the Democratic Party, both in Congress and in, in, among Americans in general, I think there's bound to be uh, growing conflicts between democratic administrations and Israeli governments over the Palestinian issue. That's why in many ways, if they really want to maintain bipartisan support for Israel, that means addressing the Palestinian issue. You can't just, you know, maintain that support with with nice, you know, public statements and speeches. You actually have to see some real policy, real changes on the ground. Mm. And and that might involve twisting Israel's arm a little bit. And it it has been speculated that that maybe there's some kind of quid pro quo that that Israel could uh, could offer in terms of uh, the Iran nuclear deal and maybe concessions to the Palestinians. It, it's not a zero sum game on either issue. That's right. I mean, there are uh, if 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 they're willing. I think there are ways that they can you know they can find common ground the US and the Israelis. But I think it's going to be very difficult because, you know, making concessions on the Palestinian uh, for the on the Palestinian issue is probably going to be the thing that is the greatest threat to mm. the stability of the Bennett Lapid government. Mm. I mean, basically, you know, that is it's a government that has agreed to try to avoid dealing with this issue. You know, that is the key for its its survival is essentially trying to avoid making any politically contentious, controversial decision with regards to the Palestinians. The Americans will be pushing for Israel to make such decisions. Most obviously in the near term, we're seeing this over the uh, American desire to reopen a consulate in East Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And I think that was something that the Biden administration probably thought was quite doable, that it wouldn't be a major issue for the Israelis, that they would accept this, that they wouldn't, you know, kick up a fuss. And I think they've been probably surprised by the extent and uh, of Israeli opposition to this, not just from Prime Minister Bennett, but also from Lapid as well. And it's already becoming a, a, a real dispute. And it's hard to see who's going to stand down on this. I mean, is the, is the Biden administration going to uh, basically uh, break its promise, its uh, promise to the Palestinian, or, Palestinian Authority that it would reopen this consulate? Or is the Israeli government going to back down and potentially risk having some of its members like Ayelet Shakib? bolt the coalition. I mean, mm. it's a real it's a real conundrum. 
Mm. Can we call it a Mexican standoff or is that... Uh... Uh, I, it, it seems to be, it seems to be, although it's happening, um, you know, um, as with all of these disputes uh, behind closed doors, not in not in some uh, town square. Of course, of course. Tell me, in, in terms of personnel, uh, are both sides happy with the, uh, the recent respective diplomatic uh, appointees? I think, you know, there hasn't been any red flags raised on either side. I haven't heard, I'm not privy, obviously, to some of the kind of, you know, confidential conversations that have been taking place. But publicly, at least, there hasn't really been any criticisms voiced on either side about these appointments. And I think the key qualification for U.S. ambassador to Israel or for an Israeli ambassador to the U.S. is whether they have the ear of the leader, whether they have the confidence and trust of the leader. I mean, Ron Derma, for example, who's a longtime, you know, uh, Israeli ambassador to the US, mm-hmm. he wasn't necessarily that popular among Democrats, to put it mildly, but he undoubtedly had the ear of Netanyahu. He was he was able to kind of speak with authority because of his perceived closeness to Netanyahu. So the key will be for, for Mike Herzog, the new uh, ambassador to the US, is he seen as enjoying the the support and of both Lapid and Bennett. If so, then I think he's going to be a successful ambassador. Uh, but if he is seen as somehow, you know, disconnected from Jerusalem, then I think that will be a problem. And the same goes for the US side. I think at the moment, the, the, the view is that Tom Nides, who's just been uh, finally confirmed, is close to Biden himself mm-hmm. and therefore will be an effective uh, interlocutor. Mm, and, and neither of them seems to be the, you know, the kind of statement appointment that that, that David Friedman was under uh, the, the previous president. Right. Well, for one thing, both of them have extensive diplomatic experience. <laughs> so that's a start. Um, and neither one of them have said, you know, uh, you know, grossly offensive statements about American Jews uh, who supported J Street, as David Friedman did before indeed. he was appointed. Indeed. Indeed. I, I found it interesting that the third session of, of the conference is called the future of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Does that include the relationship between American Jews and, and the state of Israel? Yeah, absolutely, because I think, uh, you know, American Jews have been crucial proponents and supporters of the broader U.S.-Israel relationship. In many ways, you know, they have played a, a really essential role in facilitating that relationship, in promoting it politically, in lobbying for it. Um, so, you know, in, so in many ways, uh, Jewish American attitudes towards Israel and, and how Israel is seen in the American Jewish community will have an impact, I think, in the, even though American Jews are such a small, you know, proportion of America's population, mm-hmm. they have an outsized influence on the U.S.-Israel relationship, along with, I would say, the other critical domestic constituency in the United States, which is evangelical Christians. Mm. We've heard a lot over the years about the, the widening gaps between the two communities, American Jews and Israel. Many times on this podcast, we've talked about the damage that politicians on both sides have done to that relationship. Are there any signs that someone is trying to mend fences? There are certainly indications from the Israeli government that they they see that the damage has been done. They, they recognize this and they want to try to reverse it. I think some of the steps that have already been taken are encouraging in that respect. Prime Minister Bennett, for example, and Foreign Minister Lapid, both recently meeting with Democratic members of Congress in a delegation organized by J Street, mm. um, the Davish uh, lobby, which in many ways reflects the views of maybe even 
a majority of American Jews, or at least a plurality. The fact that they were willing to meet with politicians who have been endorsed by J Street, I think is a signal, is a sign, something that Prime Minister Netanyahu wasn't willing to do. Prime Minister Bennett also gave a um, kind of conciliatory, feel-good speech to an American Jewish audience when he recently visited the US in September. Uh, And in policy terms, there seems to be a desire on the part of the government in Israel to actually implement the agreement over the uh, egalitarian prayer space at the Western Wall, Mm. which uh, Netanyahu had frozen uh, when he came under pressure from his ultra-Orthodox allies. So if that takes place, if they actually end up implementing that agreement and expanding this prayer space, that will also do something to improve the relationship between American Jews and Israel. But on the other hand, I think really, you know, those steps uh, though they're, they're nice, they are in attempts to, to try and mend fences. At the end of the day, it's policies, and in particular Israel's policy towards Palestinians mm-hmm. and its um, military rule. That, I think, is the biggest issue which has been enlarging this kind of divide between American Jews and Israel, turning the Israel into an increasingly polarizing and divisive issue within the American Jewish community. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, you know, it's nice that Bennett's saying all the right things, But his government is still expanding settlements in the West Bank, which most American Jews oppose. They recently declared that a number of Palestinian human rights organizations are terrorist uh, groups. These kind of things aren't likely to be uh, to sit well with many, at least liberal American Jews. So I think there are changes. There are uh, some steps that are uh, positive. But at the end of the day, unless there's a much more dramatic change in Israel's policies towards the Palestinians, I don't see the uh, relationship between American Jews and Israel going back to what it was, you know, in years past. Mm. So, Dov, you're not just an expert on on all things Israel. You're also an educator at an institution where just last month uh, somebody scrawled Free Palestine from the river to the sea on the wall of a classroom. Uh, Is the university treating that as a hate crime? I hope it isn't treating it as a hate crime. I know the this the incident was uh, referred to the university's uh, office for diversity, equity, and inclusion, which would examine it, would would study whether it is in fact a hate crime. I know it was upsetting to some to some students, particularly Jewish students on campus. But I think it's important to note that you know something that may be upsetting. or or offensive to Jewish students, like those slogans, isn't necessarily anti-Semitic. I mean, there are lots of things that, you know, we might find that Jews might find upsetting, but that doesn't automatically qualify these things as anti-Semitic. And these are slogans that have been, you know, used by Palestinians for decades. Um, I think it's very problematic to simply say that these slogans are anti-Semitic in and of themselves. I see these slogans as anti-Zionist in many ways, but I don't think that necessarily makes them anti-Semitic. And I think we have to be very careful before we jump to calling something anti-Semitic because something is perceived as anti-Zionist or anti-Israeli, and we shouldn't conflate these two things. Mm. And at, at, again, another subject that we've discussed a, a lot on on this podcast are the rival definitions of anti-Semitism. Tell us about the, the nexus definition. Yeah, well, the uh, nexus definition on anti-Semitism, which I was involved with um, drafting, is really an attempt uh, not to, you know, 
displace or supplant the IHRA definition, but actually uh, build upon it by, by offering, I think, a better, more precise understanding of when anti-Zionism or anti-Israel statements can become anti-Semitic. Uh, the IRA definition you know, has, has been criticized for all sorts of things, but one of the main problems is it's just, you know, pretty vague. It's poorly written. It's got all sorts of caveats and conditionals. It's not really clear from the IRA definition whether, in fact, anti-Zionism, for example, is or isn't anti-Semitic, because it mm. says it merely could be anti-Semitic. So what the Nexus document does, and also the Jerusalem Declaration on Antisemitism, I think is try to more precisely delineate when anti-Zionism is anti-Semitic and when it isn't. It said, both of those documents say that anti-Zionism in and of itself isn't necessarily anti-Semitic, but that doesn't mean they say it's never anti-Semitic. The real issue then, you know, and this is what I think all of these definitions don't really fully get at, and it's because it's a question of judgment, is to be able to determine when does anti-Zionism become anti-Semitic? What kinds of statements might be anti-Semitic? For example, you know, free Palestine or from the river to the sea. I don't think those are anti-Semitic statements. But if you express anti-Zionism by describing Israel as a as the world's worst problem or or somehow blaming Israel for all of the, you know, for COVID-19 or for mm. whatever, that is clearly anti-Semitic. So we often, you know, think that these the issue can be decided simply by a kind of definition. Really, we have to look at the context within which it's made, the language it uses, uh, the consequences of statements. So, so to go back to the example of the free Palestine from the river to the sea, you know, that in and of itself is not anti-Semitic. But if people were standing outside a synagogue and chanting those slogans at, at people leaving on a Shabbat morning, right, that would be because the you know it's one thing to to uh, write those slogans on a uh, i don't think it's right ever to to deface classrooms but it's one thing to do that as a political speech on a university campus and it's another thing to be doing that outside a synagogue when people are trying to pray mm. um so again i think it we have to look much more into the when and how these things are expressed uh, under what circumstances and to whom rather than simply you know is it or isn't it anti-semitic Mm. I'm a little concerned that in, in all the fighting over the definition of anti-Semitism, we're neglecting the debate over whether it's hyphenated or not. <laughs> I think that's an equally valid debate. Dov, I, I know you have a lot of preparation to do ahead of Sunday, so I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating. My pleasure. It's been, a, it's been fun to talk with you. Thanks for having me on the programme. A reminder, listener, that the UCLA Haaretz Conference is taking place on Sunday, the 21st of November, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 Eastern, and 7 p.m. in Israel. It's free, and it promises to be absolutely fascinating. My thanks to Professor Dov Waxman, and, as always, to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich. We'll be back again next Friday with another episode of Haaretz Weekend. Until then, Shabbat Shalom from Tel Aviv. (laughs) 